You're listening to Fun Chat. It's episode 11, and today I'm talking with Cyril Demaria of Wellesoffen Partners. This is a really interesting and in-depth discussion on ethical considerations, including ESG, in the investment decision-making process. We're going to talk about uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance, you know, insert noun, issues. Yep. Um, and it's quite pertinent, obviously, because we're in the middle of a global pandemic health crisis and a lockdown that's affected you know, people and companies in ways that none of us have ever seen before. Um, but I thought it might be quite interesting to just step back from all of that and talk about ESG in the round as, a, as an investment concept. Because mm-hmm. um, I've got to say, I am personally very sceptical about ESG, but it's very difficult to find any real critical or analytical thinking on the subject on the internet. I'm, I'm really not sure there, there is any. Uh, and yet it's huge. Uh, I think, you know, I read one article that said it's like, accounts for 30 trillion mm-hmm. in assets. I don't know how that compares to the, the private equity industry, but it's like uh, a multiple of that, I guess. Yeah, it, it, the industry is a bit creative also in counting. Uh, you know, um, I think there are shades of uh, ESG, let's call it like this. And so um, it's very easy, you know, as soon as you start to apply some sort of some form of filter, then to say, oh, you know, it's ESG, so it's, it's, it falls into the bucket. And then, and then as you aggregate assets, it looks like a force you need to, to count with and, and, and to deal with. Uh, the reality is probably a little bit more complex than that. And, um, and also, I think that's why the EU decided to, to, to express itself on, on that uh, in terms of uh, uh, legislation. It's to avoid greenwashing because, you know, as soon as you start to put like a label somewhere, then it just counts. And then of course, <laughs> yeah, if you compare 30 trillion with, I would say for private equity at top of my mind, it's like around three to four, then it looks much, much bigger. Um, but, you know, one thing for sure is that what we have in private equity, we know that it's at least what we know of. We don't have the full picture and it's really fully dedicated to that. We don't count, you know, something which would maybe be in, uh, in other buckets, <laughs> uh, but, you know, just happen to label as a private equity operation. It doesn't work like that. So the, the EU's proposed regulation has a definition of, of ESG then? What this say, it, it's, a, it's a little bit um, a different approach that they wanted to do. I don't think that they agree on what it is. <laughs> and that's actually looping back to your point about the fact that it's, it's a bit challenging to understand and to have a, an analytical or critical perspective on that because it's, nobody really has the same definition. Um, it's, it's the same with Sharia compliant products, which by the way, share 90% of the criteria with ESG. It depends really which color you talk to and how you structure your product. And then it might be compliant with one's color and not with another one saying, you know, you have to be more rigorous and then uh, it's not compliant. So the EU um, had a very different approach. They said that if you make a claim, you have to substantiate it. And, and it's not just slapping you know, a label. You really have to demonstrate that it does indeed do something. And the idea is really to avoid the greenwashing, as far as I understood. Um, and, and that might be a first step towards more ambitious 
projects or, or, or let's say reach uh, in terms of reach. Uh, but but uh, so far that's what they ended up with. And actually uh, the industry complained because it's still fairly theoretical and it's not that easy to interpret if you're a product provider. Yeah, we, so I guess it begs the question, what, what's the point of the industry? If it's, what's the point of a label that no one can agree on what the label actually says? It's, like, it's oversimplifying something that it appears cannot be simplified in a way that allows it to remain meaningful. It's, it's an excellent point. Um, you know, in the Bible, they talk about the original sin, and here there might be one, <laughs> um, in the sense that um, ESG has been designed as a private series of a series of private initiatives, but without any somehow coordination with the public uh, authorities. And 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 if you don't agree on the basics, then it's very difficult to act. And 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 in that sense, you might take an action. Uh, and I might take one uh, under the, the, let's say, the, the goodwill of doing something good, but actually our two actions might cancel each other out because our perspectives are fairly different. So <clears throat> in, the, in the first book I published, which was back in 2003, uh, it's only available in French, but uh, it's not great literature anyway. It's just, um, it was a first attempt to have a look at what it is and actually, for example, do you have the same approach in private equity and in ESG? Because the durations of investment are supposed to be fairly long. So um, I thought, you know, it would be interesting to learn what ESG uh, means because it started a little bit before actually modern private equity as we know it started in 70, early 70s and private equity as we know it really had its boost at, in the 80s, essentially. Yeah, and Although it wasn't called ESG back then, though, was it? Yeah, it was. Um, was it? Actually, not really. It was sustainable development. Um, so ESG somehow is, is, is inheriting the efforts from sustainability and sustainability was already environmental, social, but eth ethical, not governance. Governance replaced it ultimately. So <clears throat> in the book, I try to, to say, okay, if I can learn something from ESG, it might be helpful to understand what happens in private equity. And it turned out to be a book only on sustainable development because it was so complicated to understand and the definitions are so different. Um, so you have people on one hand, for example, who say, I don't want to invest in these sectors. And then on the other hand, at the other extreme, you have people who say all sector is good as long as I take the best performers according to certain criteria or certain scoring systems. And then later you had different approaches which came up with, for example, what they call triple bottom line. So you should be efficient financially but you should be efficient also along other criteria and then the, the three of them give you this triple bottom line approach but all of that ultimately uh, doesn't answer our question what is actually ESG how do you define a label how do you make sure that we don't get sold something which looks like it which tastes like it but isn't the real thing for example and that's a little bit the concern I have because um, the momentum that you've been referring to earlier, this 30 billion, obviously <clears throat> some of that comes from an appetite, uh, a preoccupation, maybe some form of, of will to act. And I think this shouldn't be criticized. I mean, you know, if we act for the common good, then, then it should be encouraged. But <clears throat> I think there is a saying which says that hell, if, if paved 
out of good intentions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and my biggest worry is that we would do things and with, with good conscience and really good will, but it might turn out to be counterproductive or actually a waste of resources because that's the whole thing. If I spend one pound in doing something, is this pound really well invested to the best capacity of the ESG purpose? And, and it's never demonstrated. The, 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 the hidden agenda, and that's why the EU stepped in, uh, is that <clears throat> because people want to do well, then of course, product providers jumped in and say, oh, this is the product you should invest in. But, but the question is, does it, do, does it do what it pretends to do? I, if I invest in the best, um, let's say, performers in a sector, but the sector overall is not doing so great in terms of ESG, I would just happen to invest with the less worse one. And it's not necessarily what we want. Um, so I think that's the main concern and that's the main dynamic. And that's why the analytical part that you were referring to is so challenging. Do you think that there is, is or is supposed to be a link between ethics and ESG? Well, actually, yes. And I think that's another part which is a little bit disappointing. When you look at something for quite some time, um, sometimes you get a little bit frustrated, sometimes you get surprised, and sometimes you get a little bit disappointed too. Um, ethics was in a way, you know, if you think in terms of intellectual uh, levels uh, of uh, compliance, then social and environmental, you can set up some sort of criteria, you can get metrics like number of employment created, uh, suffering at work, number of days where you're off work because of sickness. This you can measure, you can improve. The same for environmental criteria. And we can discuss the validity or not. And actually, I wouldn't go into that level of details because I'm not really a consultant specialized in that. But the ethics part, and that's what I like in the original sustainability proposition, is that it forces you always to step back from this empirical, practical, operational steps and say, hold on, does it still make sense? Of course, ethics is philosophical. And a lot of people in business say, philosophy is great. If, you know, I loved it when I was in high school, university. But now we are here to get things done. And we cannot debate forever. But the fact that ethics was replaced by governance, which is a much more actionable part. In governance, I can also say how many union people sit at the board, how many uh, employees can actually contribute, how many stakeholders can contribute to the, to, to the governance of the company, including you know, the extended uh, perimeter like uh, suppliers, clients, etc. That's all fine and great. But the great thing about ethics, it, uh, it had this infinite feedback loop telling you, it's like your mirror, you know? Uh, the, the, how do I look? Can I do something better? I, this was great and this disappeared. It, it, it was an, an equivalent of, a, of a, a little bit the preamble of a constitution. I know that in the UK, it's a bit different, but in, in, on the continent, we usually have constitutions which really tells you what are the fundamental rights but the first part is the preamble and it's a little bit philosophical this ethical part it's like 
you have to look at the rest, including the laws and the regulations, all in this perspective of the initial principles which were guiding us. And, and the ethics were this part. And I think that was great for business, but business is not necessarily comfortable with that. That's why they, they swept it away and they replaced it by governance. Yeah, you're, you're right to say we do things differently in, in the UK. We, in fact, don't even have, we don't have a written constitution. And I think that's, uh, it's, it's for the same reason that your preamble is so important. It's that when you're dealing with something that's very complex, um, it needs to be applied with judgment, not hard and fast rules. And so we've gone a step further and not written anything down. You have a preamble that can be interpreted in, in different ways. And I think that allowing that flexibility when you're dealing with very complex things and ethics, ethical judgments are always complex because they always inhabit um, shades of grey. And I think the problem that I, the fundamental problem that I have with, with ESG is, is that it, it takes away that ethical dimension because, because it, in, its, in its aim to ensure that everything can be measured, it makes everything black and white yes. and good and bad. And, and, it, and it means that whatever, fundamentally then, whatever is good for profits over the long term, let's say, it must be good. It must be ipso facto sustainable. And in that sense, I find it quite an extremist ideology. I mean, it goes way further than Milton Friedman ever did in terms of putting profits first. And yet it cloaks itself in virtue words. So I, I find it very challenging to, uh, to, to analyze ESG. It's, it's a very important point, what you mentioned. Um, it's not really spelled out like that very often. Um, it's, it's like, you know, Having a critical perspective on ESG, first of all, it's like criticizing something or even just questioning something which is supposed to be good and people don't like it. Um, so it's very surprising every time you, you come, it's like, oh yeah, but you know, global warming is there, we have to do something about it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but um, is ESG, for example, as we do it now, the relevant one, we are going to be judged by the future generations. That's the original idea of sustainability and the Brundtland definition of what is sustainable investment. We are going to be judged. And, and yes, our good intentions are one thing, but then you have actions. And the fact that we don't, we don't criticize it is, is one problem. But then it loops back even further to what you were describing, which is... <clears throat> Even though I would be able to criticize ESG, it, I, 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 would, I would then start to criticize a whole system. And I think that's, that's the most difficult challenge now. Because if you look at ESG, it's inspired from other initiatives which are coming essentially from the US, which were about promoting minorities, which were about setting criteria to measure up a target versus uh, the status quo. And unfortunately, uh, it didn't seem to work in the US. Minorities are still struggling. Uh, there are a few visible ones. There are some more efforts about the promotion of some gender minorities, for example, which actually happen to be the majority if, if we talk about the female population. And it's all good and well. You cannot be against promoting people who deserve it. But there, there are a few things which are extremely challenging and you cannot actually criticize it in the open, which is, is it the right way, the way we do it? Is quotas a good thing? Is an ESG 
box to tick, the good way to approach. And you have a whole industry which is built on that. Consultants, auditors, etc. People love what they can measure, but it doesn't mean that's the right way to do it. Uh, and and uh, that's paralyzing our thinking. And it, the thing is that it costs resources. We're so careful about resources today, right? Um, we say, oh, we should save this and the money is there, but you know, we should use for that purpose. One example is the bailout of the airlines. And it's a little bit beyond my remit because I'm, I'm, on, I'm only in private markets. But <clears throat> now we start to have comments about, oh, should we have bailed out um, <clears throat> airline companies without setting up new targets which are more stringent? And it's like we are running you know, the machine reverse. Um, first of all, what do we want to achieve? Then is the airline the best way to achieve it? And then what are the, the, the elements of, of implementation that you would like to think about before saying, oh, you should reduce your carbon emissions by X by this date, and then we give you the money. What if they can't? I mean, what if fuel, you know, that they burn cannot be burned safely, you know, made out of something else? Or what if this something else is actually not efficient? There is a big debate, for example, about uh, the way that we're moving from a fossil fuel to electric uh, cars. And if you take the full account of, of how much does it cost in terms of resources and, and, that it, and, and pollution to extract the, the rare earth and all of that, right, it might actually not be effective. And, and we're just jumping into it. And the, the cradle to a cradle approach is actually to take this into account. And, you know, say, well, there might be some lobbying behind, you know, if I'm an electricity producer, I'm very happy that suddenly everybody jumps on a scooter or buys an electric car. But the fact is that it might not be beneficial to the, to the wider community. It might be beneficial to the Western societies, but it might not be too beneficial to the, to the less developed societies which are extracting that and, and cope with the consequences, which usually they're not equipped for. Um, if I look at open sky mines, I mean, that's not necessarily an environmental success, is it? And, and we don't really think about that, it, but collectively it has a consequence. I mean, so mm. once again, it starts to be very theoretical and people hate that, but <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. Yeah, I think you're, you're completely right. So there are two things um, for me that come out of what you just said. One is the decision-making authority around these let's call them ethical judgments and the other is the competency around around it so the, in terms of the decision making authority for me esg subverts the correct hierarchy that there should be in a free society in yeah. a free society like in a democracy we uh, we all vote and we vote politi for politicians who create rules yeah. whereas esg puts corporate executives who are for the most part merely agents in the driving seat and that allows them to make these decisions so that so there's one point which is it subverts the decision-making authority but then the other point is that these individuals who are maybe very good at managing airlines are not necessarily competent to make judgments about let's say the environment exactly and uh, um, once again straight really uh, that's a very very important point um, there are two elements in what you say. <clears throat> the first one is the, the role of the citizen, who happens also to be a consumer, but something else. Uh, the fact that sustainability was captured basically by the private sector and somehow put 
in the background, uh, the, the public authorities, means that we don't have any control on that. And, and, and the agenda is not set by us anymore and we cannot even voice anything. Uh, we could demonstrate, but it's fuzzy and it's, it's short-lived. And, and uh, then yeah, there is this never-ending uh, series of demonstrations, but it doesn't mean that we, we can voice a solution or we can set a framework. The other thing is that, <clears throat> and I agree with you, the fact that you're a corporate executive maybe a brilliant one doesn't make you a very effective policy maker uh, and it goes very far <clears throat> if we look at the airlines just and i don't want to pick on them um, i mean i have no special judgment on it. it's just an illustration right but <clears throat> one of the things we could have uh, worked on is the carbon market the carbon market has been a failure because it was badly designed but if there was a price for the ton of carbon which would actually reflect something then we could start to think in a cradle-to-cradle -cradle approach and say, look, I'm an aligner. I need to uh, burn high-octane fuels so that I can you know, bring someone from A to B in a safe environment, <clears throat> in an economical and a way as well, because you know, plane tickets are supposed to be expensive. They might actually be more expensive in the future. And <clears throat> I cannot make it without emitting carbon, okay? Which, by the way, it's around 6% worldwide. So means that 94% come from somewhere else. But maybe I can engineer something upwards or downwards, not necessarily planting trees, which is what, by the way, you can do when you pay an extra contribution on your ticket to offset. Uh, it can be carbon capture. It can be, it can be a lot of other things. But if you don't have a viable carbon market, which is, by the way, an efficient market mechanism, then of course you don't you don't price your ton of carbon correctly and <clears throat> this is the part where this dynamic gets very strange because public authorities step back so much from the debate as far as i could see unless you're you know on the green versus non-green debate but it's a different purely political phenomenon then <clears throat> uh, the, the 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 discrepancy between the public authorities getting backwards and stepping back and the private ones stepping forward and basically capturing the agenda and setting it up is actually very, very disturbing because you, you don't get this balance of power. You don't get this didactic, didactic approach, which is sometimes dysfunctional. You have all this lobbying, etc., but it's part of a democratic process. And maybe I'm not comfortable, and to be honest, I'm not really comfortable about shifting from fossil fuel to purely electric because I know that there are alternatives to electric, which might be better, but for some reason there was a choice which was made somewhere where I didn't have even a voice, uh, maybe it's just one person, to say, look, I'm not comfortable with this shift. Maybe I want that we go from fossil to purely hydrogen vehicles and not electric, but that's a different strategy, that's a different uh, innovation, etc. Maybe maybe nuclear power is not that bad if we go to the next generation, but if we don't invest in it, then we will never know. So all these choices are, are, are very disturbing. And as you said, you can be a brilliant executive, but not a, a, a good policy maker. And, and the reason we know that is that sometimes some people make the jump from business to politics, and then we discover it doesn't necessarily work. Mm. Yeah, well, I've always thought that um, the reason that, that 
the private sector is so much more efficient than the public sector is not because it it has brilliant people in and, it, and the private sector attracts brilliant people but that they have this massive advantage that they have a very very simple organizing uh, motive the profit motive and that falls away as soon as you go into the public sector yep. and therefore the environment is far more complex and you're dealing with far more complex issues so so i'd agree with that and uh, and, and i think effectively the the scenario that you describe happens because people get frustrated that progress doesn't happen fast enough on these important issues and the free countries of the world can't seem to corral themselves and get their acts together in order to address them and so i think perhaps understandably um, the private sector or the corporate world decides to take things into their own hands but i think the outcome of that is actually ultimately poor because there are no shortcuts to solving complex issues you just either kick the ball down the road or you make things worse because of these unintended consequences and i think the esg industry is a is a is a formalization of that shortcutting approach i agree it's it's very interesting because <clears throat> one of the things that people would tell you when they talk about um let's call them ESG uh, topics, is the very long-term nature of these issues. There is these projections. If by then we have increased the number of uh, degrees on average by that, the consequences will be this and that. What we know is that the corporate horizon is actually fairly short. So if your target is beyond, let's say, six to 12 months, and we know that anywhere in any corporation, unless you're in very large utilities or very, very specific industries, which think over the next 20 to 30 years, like the nuclear industry, but most of the corporations like banks, uh, even car manufacturers, their time horizon tend to be fairly, fairly short compared to these very long-term targets. So there is a discrepancy between an executive which has a very specific target over a specific time horizon and the very long-term issue that you want to address. The fact is that there is a fair amount of executives which will change jobs. So their targets are going to be reevaluated, changes by the next person. And usually whatever the previous one did is usually reviewed and then changed again. So all these constant changes make it very difficult to match this long-term target. You can have a very long-term plan, but if your successor doesn't stick to it, it's just, you know, it was just a good intention. So the, the public authorities have been suffering from two um, ills. The first one is that the complexity you refer to is very difficult to absorb by uh, the general public because they're not necessarily as involved in the day-to-day -day activity of administration and politics. And the more complex the issue is, the more helpless they feel, and, 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 and the more likely they're going to vote according to their, let's say, guts more than their knowledge, because accumulating knowledge is very, very challenging and, and resource-consuming for them. The second thing is that <clears throat> the long-term target, even on the political side, requires a massive effort because um, most of the um, let's say members of parliament are elected at least for five to seven years maximum i mean in or 
modern democracies, I would call it like this. And then, you know, projecting for so long in the future is extremely challenging for them. So um, in that respect, it's, 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 it's a bit like that the government suffered uh, from this um, double whammy of, of the lack of alignment between their time horizon is very long-term uh, targets because you have to show voters that what you did you know it's efficient and then that they renew your mandate and and if it's 25 30 years down the line it's very very challenging to align that and the second part is is, is the fact that as i said it's it's very challenging for them to to make things so complicated understandable so that actually the citizen can act and vote and commit and the commitment of the citizen is crucial actually but um, what I've been looking at, for example, in the private market side, is that it, it's even worse. It's at least on the public side, we try to somehow get the approval because by construction, we get it from the citizens. Regularly, you have to ask them, right? And maybe their answers are flawed. That's fine. That's the nature of democracy. But at least they, they had a chance. On the private sector, it's, we usually don't get asked anything. I remember a long time ago, I, I even wrote emails to companies saying, can you do this? Can you do that? And they never even replied. But it's even worse today. It's like you get bullied, basically. Um, with a lot of innovation, for example, it's like you see that it's been designed to coral you. You're, you're, you're uh, maybe a very nice sheep or a very nice cow. And for them, you're just this. And then they want you to go in this direction. And then they will do everything to coral you there. And there is are no... You, sorry, Cyril. Are you talking about the relationship between a private market fund manager and their investee company? No, it's more like, for example, the nature of innovation or the nature of business as it's designed today. Um, it, it, the, their perception of who you are as a client is very, very normative. And for that, uh, you know, you cannot even contribute on the ESG level. The, the right. parallel I'm trying to make maybe, uh, yeah. which is not that clear, is that in a democracy, when you get a citizen, a citizen to choose, you can also align your behavior uh, according to your principle and your standards and your voting pattern, right? So I recycle, for example, because maybe I believe that recycling is a good thing and maybe I vote accordingly. If I'm a private uh, uh, client of a corporation, the only thing with I'm offered is do you want to buy or not? End of the story. And then there is no behavior. There is no principle. There is no, uh, it's challenging to, there is not even a way that you can contribute saying, for example, yeah. instead of doing this, can you, can you do that? instead of sending me pet bottles can you do glass again um maybe i'm ready to pay the price it's 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 very challenging to see that and esg all it's a very top-down approach esg uh, there is no grassroots there of course you have attempts like with these cooperatives or back to the roots and farmers market that's all great and i'm not criticizing that but i think it lacks to scale dimension and systematism uh, that would be required uh, to, to make a difference on the private side. There is no feedback loop. That's the idea of the cradle to cradle is that if you want to have a top-down approach, fine. Maybe that's, that's the way business is organized, as you said earlier. And, you know, maybe that's the best way we can do so far. But then this top-down approach has to have a cradle to cradle approach. It's like a full circle. Where do I start? Where do I end? Where is the feedback loop? And then, you know, where do we start all over again? 
And so because of that, we are missing that, it's very, very challenging. Yeah, but it's not a, it's not a top-down approach. It's a corporate top-down yes, approach because exactly. the top-down approach is the is the uh, the authorities correct and then so what you really want is to cut out the middleman you you do want the uh the consumer activism and the the customer awareness but that's slow as you as you correctly describe it's slow and it's imprecise and it's uh you know you have to stop buying goods but then it takes ages for people to interpret why have you stopped buying them but it does happen eventually like as you mentioned farmers markets like the whole organic food movement as far as i'm concerned that was a very bottom up that's what people wanted yeah. and it came through very slowly but you're right it's kind of frustrating and then you've got but then you've got politicians who are there to and who are generally very good at interpreting what what you know people's what people want that's that's what that's what they do but it's it's the uh, it's the people in the middle, the unelected, you know, agents of corporate shareholders taking unilateral decisions, which seems to be the most efficient way of getting this stuff done. That that's the that's the danger, um, I think. And you're of course you're in Switzerland, where I don't know a huge amount about Swiss politics, but I understand that you have a lot of like referenda on things, depending on which canton you're in. So you so you know how difficult it is to get your head around complex policy questions presumably because you have to do it all the time is that right uh, all the time maybe not but fairly frequently i would say on average every two to three months we have to 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 formulate an opinion on some questions which we can ask ourselves or which are asked to us which is a good way it i don't want to idealize any system but one of the no. great thing about this approach is that it helps cultivate this knowledge at the citizen level so you're informed and you have to think and sometimes some of the questions are actually not that easy and straightforward so um but the great thing about it is that at least you have ha had the chance to talk and to think about it and you can discuss with your friends for example that's what i do and usually the different parties also have a very clear position that is explained so then you can start to think about it the, the other thing is that it forces you, but also the whole system to think over the long term. And um, that's one of the very strong benefits of this approach. Um, some time ago, we voted about setting up a minimum wage, for example, in Switzerland. And it was rejected. And that was a very strange decision, if you think about it, because everybody you know, would vote and would implicitly benefit from it. But the reason why it was rejected is because a lot of voters realized that might actually be including some rigidity in the economy, and that's not the best way to do it. It's a very, very, very strong decision. Um, it might hurt even yourself, you know, um, um, if one day you have to work in this kind of job where, unfortunately, you have to fall back onto this minimal wage. And so um, the, the whole uh, dynamic is really to say, okay, do I think responsibly? Is it, is it viable for, the, for me, but also for everybody going uh, forward over the long term? It has also some drawbacks. Uh, for example, decision taking might be longer. Um, the reason why, for example, um, um, we suspended somehow the parliament is because um, the government could take decisions which normally would have been debated for a very, very long time. So we had this state of unusual uh, uh, things where the government could decide without asking the parliament. Um, and the other thing is that sometimes um, when you have to have a very strong stance, it gets a little bit diluted because you need to find compromise. The Swiss system is based on the idea that everybody has to get on board. 
So not only it introduces delays, but also it can dilute sometimes some decisions which have to, to be fairly bold. But <clears throat> the voting thing that you were referring to is a way to avoid dilution. So you can ask people vote yes or no on this because mm -hmm. we don't want to, 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 to go into this lengthy and diluting process. Um, so it's one approach. Um, and that's why also <clears throat> I would say sometimes from this perspective, you see that um, there is a kind of implicit bullying aspect in DSG. Uh, someone decided for you and, you know, uh, they, they decide without asking you. And it's, it's a little bit, um, it creates a friction, if I, if I can say like this. Well, well, yeah, that's exactly right. It may be difficult and time consuming to have to talk these topics over with your friends all the time, but if nothing else, it gives the entire country an understanding that there is no right answer to many, many of these problems and that they're very complex. And so it will make people wary when people come up with, uh, with facile slogans and, and labels. And that's precisely what seems to be happening in one of the most sophisticated industries in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's it's exactly true. It's it's interesting what you what you you just said because um, it also highlights the fact that um, um, as you go through this discussion process, um, there is some sort of I mean that's a bit of a, a grandiose wording, but it's like nation building in a way because it forces you to discuss. You, uh, of course, you can read the document on your own, vote, and then that's it. Uh, but most of the time, there are some issues you're not very clear about, and, and, and then you start to talk around, and, and then you can exchange opinions. It's, it's fairly diplomatic, you know, we're in Switzerland. Um, <laughs> um, but um, at least, you know, sometimes I change my mind, actually, uh, because I discuss with someone, I thought, mm, actually, yeah, uh, it's not what I thought, which was the correct approach, so I, I voted differently. And, and for that, it, it creates some sort of very strong sense that collectively we took a decision. Maybe it's not the best one. Maybe re retrospectively, we should have done things differently. But at that time, I remember that I took this decision and actually I discussed it with a few people and, and that's how we built our decision collectively. And so I think that that's, that's important because there is another thing which we, we, we are experiencing today. It's, it's, it's this historical revisionism. And, and so some of the decisions which were taken 10, 15, 20, 100 years, 200 years ago, tend to be judged according to the, co the common current standards. And, and then you get blamed for that. Of course, you could say people who were living 200 years ago, they don't care anymore. And maybe, you know, in a generation's time, we won't care either because we will be out of the loop. Um, but it's, it's, it's a bit disturbing because um, um, it, it forces us to take decisions which, which are maybe not, not the relevant ones. Um, since we are so sure that our current values are, are the, the correct one, because we're judging people harshly because of that, um, it, it doesn't help us to be self-critical or to think maybe, you know, we don't know much or enough. And what we're doing today, it, it might not be the best, the best option. And so it, it, it doesn't help us to progress um, this lack of self-criticism or distance. Um, and uh, that's what I wanted to emphasize earlier. I was implicitly referring, for example, to the venture industry. Uh, often you hear entrepreneurs coming to you and say, oh, I want to change this and because it's going to be better. But that's an implicit conclusion that what you think today is the best way, but maybe what was designed over the course of decades is the result of trial and error, which were not disclosed. 
and 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 then the optimum we get today is is unsatisfactory but maybe it has its reasons to be there and then you're going to kick into it destroy everything and replace by your solution but who tells us that it's effectively the better one and it it's it's very disturbing because now it's very much entrenched this idea that break you know things and get away with the rules and and do your thing and then you know think about the consequences later well the consequences might be that drivers are forced to drive you know unprotected and uh, might be infected by the virus for example and and it's a bit late to think about it now uh, and maybe they're going to starve if they don't drive which interestingly enough is a problem coming from the less developed countries but now is re-emerging in in developed countries so it used to be at a time what if you were a taxi driver you were employed and 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 then you know if you didn't work then you would be elected to be on an employment program which is not great but it's better than starving and today we're coming back to the almost you know victorian time where where basically it's either you work or you die because you're hungry. I mean, it's it or it's so it's either you you take the risk to be contaminated or to be hungry. If you're in a rickshaw in India, as we saw on TV, I understand that because unfortunately we are still you know in this progressive state of of reaching a more developed stage. But as modern societies, I'm not sure that it's something we should we should accept, and I'm not sure that it's ESG compliant, for example. Hmm. Yeah, it's you know we don't always move forward when we introduce innovations yeah uh, in english there's a phrase called chesterton's gates it's after gk chesterton it's the idea that if you come across a gate and you don't know what it's for don't automatically remove it just because you don't know what it's for it doesn't mean it doesn't have a have a purpose and yep. um, i don't know if you're also familiar with herbert simon's idea of satisficing which no. is that it for certain problems of sufficient complexity there is no optimal solution and therefore uh, a solution that is good enough may well be the best possible solution there is and attempts to fight attempts to impose efficiency on that system and find efficiencies um, can backfire so your example of the taxi driver being a perfect one you may not realize why the system seems a bit inefficient but there may well be good reasons for it that have been time proven. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, just uh, to complement that, because usually when I take this example, people get very emotional. And uh, I'm not here to defend any lobby or, or industry. Um, the point I'm just trying to make is that if you think in terms of system, even though having lived in Paris, I know exactly what does it mean to be, you know, waiting forever a taxi which doesn't arrive or lack of taxis or the fact that they're extremely rude, etc. So I understand, the, the, let's say, the, the very visceral reaction because somehow, sometimes I got the same. But if you think in terms of system, then you realize that actually that's one of the few jobs that you can do if you're not... Um, let's say, particularly um, uh, intellectual, where you can have a decent living, etc. So it has consequences. I'm not saying we should encourage this very locked system uh, with very strong rigidities, etc. <clears throat> but <clears throat> instead of destroying it altogether, maybe the first step would have been to see, is there a way to improve it incrementally? And that's actually a very interesting thing because um, what you referred to earlier is a very European way of thinking, in a way. We're, we're very self-loathing, uh, saying, oh, we don't get these disruptions, right? We don't get the next Google and all of that. 
okay, maybe. But who said that incremental innovation is a bad thing? If it creates resilience, for example, in a society, if it creates some sort of this positive externalities that we're all after with ESG, what if we produce them as a society already? Because they are so difficult to measure, I understand that it's frustrating. But instead of expansively generating them through an ESG process, maybe we generate some which are worth preserving just by tinkering with the system instead of destroying it. When, when you have this creative destruction that Schumpeter was writing about, and which is a very interesting concept, etc., it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wipe off everything and then rebuild, right? It, it's, it's more like you have a creative destruction when you go during a marathon in your muscles. They're self-destroying and rebuilding a bit, but they, they don't wipe out your legs and then replace them with bionic ones, right? You're just improving over time, right? I think the image is not necessarily that far with, with our strengths as Europeans, but of course it's less visible. It, you don't dream about someone who improved the way to make a, a windshield on a car. Uh, you dream about uh, Google or whatever. Yes, okay, but there is still innovation. And, and, and the way it's done might be more absorbable. I think ESG also highlight the fact that there is a discrepancy between the speed on the economic system and maybe somehow within there with technical progress, kind of acceleration, even though it might be overstated, there is some form. And the fact that society has its own way to evolve. At the end of the day, we're humans, we didn't change radically, you know, physically, but also intellectually. There is accumulated knowledge, but it still takes time for the social practices to absorb some of the innovation and to absorb some of the progress from the economy. And this discrepancy between these two areas, I think, is underestimated. And the fact that here you want to have ESG and here you don't make so much faster progress means that you take the risk that what is done here doesn't get absorbed properly there or correctly or it might even as i said cancel each other out it's it's it, this for example is something we should think about collectively it it's very difficult to put on a table and say let's invite experts and think about the disadequation between technical progress and social progress it's it's not that easy i understand that but the fact that we don't even discuss it it's it's actually a problem um mm. Or if it's discussed, it might be in the confines of very academic circles and it doesn't seem to get out anymore or we don't, we don't get fed with it. Uh, I'm just a normal average observer of the market, but I don't get this inflow anymore or if I ever got it uh, or there is no transmission. And uh, it, it's very, very surprising. Uh, society produces things. Uh, in terms of norms, values, and evolution. But how does it overflow on the corporate world? At the moment, ESG is, is about overflowing in society. Uh, the, the, the other way around this is less visible. Unless you have these grassroots phenomenon that you were referring to, which show that there is a will. Um, but sometimes there is also, of course, a strong political sense into it. And I think that's where corporations are uneasy. They don't want to choose side or mm. you know, go green, go left, go right, etc. And, and that, that's probably where they're a little bit uh, wary about adopting this kind of social innovations because they don't know how politically marketed they will be or, or how they will be perceived. This I understand, but there still should be a dialogue. Um, mm. 
And it shouldn't happen in the World Economic Forum only. It should be a little yes. bit different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so interesting. I'm, I think on the creative destruction point, I think it's very polarized. Um, I think on the one hand, you've got, as you kind of described, the Silicon Valley style, mm -hmm. you know, all, all in approach. And on the other, you have kind of the, the leftist socialist um, parties that want to protect the status quo at all costs and uh and you very rare and, and these two are kind of ideologies and you very rarely allow them to meet through and, and it's a complex issue and it's hard to say who's right and so you need to discuss it and it's context specific exactly that's actually i think you put your finger in a much more synthetic way than me on something which is also something i observe i've been 20 years now in the venture sector um, as an investor, as an observer, as a writer, um, I still do venture investments. And what I observed is two things. The first one is that uh, the industry shifted massively from a function of control on an investment to something that they call entrepreneur friendly. It's, um, it's a little bit like parenting, right? It used to be that parenting was about discipline, rules, and now it's like, oh, you know, we should move them this direction because otherwise their psychological development is going to be hampered. We shouldn't set limits, etc. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not a good thing. So there is a bit of that in the industry. And the other one is this messianism. It's like you cannot criticize the venture by, by construction, the venture industry, but first and foremost, the innovation in, in the venture industry and the fact that they're financing the startups, because otherwise you're eluded, you're against progress, you're against everything which is going to get better, um, basically, or someone who is uh, not able to grasp that. And questioning it is being part out of the club. Um, and we, we saw the extreme to which it went some of the worst outcome in terms of governance since we were discussing that and it's been replacing ethics i've been up, uh, you know appearing in the full light it's terranos it's uber it's it's we work i mean these are let's let's be honest these are disasters these are i mean the the, the governance issues there i mean terranos it's it's even worse we, we put the health of people in danger because of this messianism this uh, this approach i mean it's it's you could even say that they took a playbook from the the communist dictatorships and then they applied with this cult of the leader and it's extremely detrimental and venture should be in the the governance business private equity is supposed to be the governance superstar that's how they outperform that's why they managed to why they managed to do all of that but in these three cases it's actually terrifyingly worrying to see how bad the investors have been and how unprepared, how weak. And, and, and ultimately, I mean, there were reports which were extremely worrying of the corporate culture in, in, in what is now a listed company. And I don't see that they have changed dramatically. I mean, uh, it's it's extremely extremely worrying and, and and the venture industry should be one of the best i mean when you have to control 20 people that's the moment where you build the corporate culture that's where you you set in stone some principles that's where the good recruitments are done for the long term and 
we, we, we don't seem to see that in some of what are the largest uh, corporations which have been built by the industry recently, but it goes very far. Um, if you still have a dual uh, um, shareholdership in, 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 in some of these companies which have been listed, uh, and, and so it shows that this cult of leadership still exists even after they've been public. So it, it, it's not that the venture industry itself is a little bit, let's say, um, um, uh, is, is less efficient at what it used to be. Uh, it's, it's that the, the lack of initial uh, power remains and, and this lead, very strong leadership remains in place for, for the very, very long term. Um, and I think that's highly prejudicial. 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 Yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. It sounds to me like it's a, a moral failing, actually, because my, my sense is that um, the private equity slash venture capital governance model is a robust one and can work very well. Mm -hmm. And from what you describe, it sounds like a moral failing to put in the correct cultural, uh, the, the correct culture leads to um, a diluting of the governance mechanism whereby you end up with with governance mechanisms that aren't that aren't robust and i think that's that's really telling when it comes to esg because it, it means that governance is actually a second order issue not a first order issue yep it's ethics come first and a sense of what's right and what's right is context specific and so it's not it's not a first principles analysis a first principles analysis is the one that you just gave which is what are we actually trying to achieve here and how do we achieve it yeah, it's a multi-dimensional question that you just asked now, and I think that's probably the, the most central one uh, in the industry. Um, what we know is that we have very powerful government governance instruments um, in buyout, in venture. All these instruments are very well known. Um, they're very, very powerful. It's like having drones, right? You can do a lot of things with drones today. It's, it's very impressive. You can deliver to people, but you can also shoot them from 100 kilometers with very high precision, right? So we have these instruments which are extremely powerful. And then the question is, what do you want to achieve with it? Uh, and, and are you sure that you have all the context and the background to use it to the best possible uh, um, um, uh, action? Right. And what I observe, for example, is that the due diligence time in venture has been compressed dramatically. When I started to work uh, 20 years ago, I had six to nine to 12 months to do a due diligence. Today, I have at best three months, but often it's a question of weeks. So I have to use these very powerful governance instruments as an investor. But my information background is actually very weak. And so. <clears throat> It tells us two things. The first thing is that if I have to think about ESG within this compressed time, it's going to be very, very challenging, almost an afterthought, thought, sorry. The second thing is that because of the lack of information, I cannot check everything and adjust the instruments to the best use possible. Let's, let's be more concrete because now I, I sense that I've been a bit too theoretical. If I get six to nine months to speak with an entrepreneur, but also the key 
collaborators in a company, I will get a sense of what's going on there. How do they work? What are the behaviors? Um, maybe then I would set my governance framework saying, look, they might need some help here. Uh, maybe I will ultimately have to change that person because I don't feel that he or she is able to step up to this kind of issue. Or maybe we should have an initiative which is going to control for a specific a need from the management that I will have identified. If I'm in a three months compressed time, I will just check. Do they have this? Yes. Do they have this? No. Then, okay, if they don't have it, I will just put this standard clause because I know that this is how it works. And, and that's a very, very bad way to control your risk, but also bad way to, um, to impulse positive change. And so uh, the ESG would require actually extra information, which we know is very expensive to produce, but it will also probably have uh, this needed alignment of interest between the investors. My perception of ESG as a VC investor might not be the, the same than the next one. And then the question is, how do you add this extra level of governance on top of something which is already complicated to negotiate. The instruments are powerful, but they're negotiated to ne uh, complicated to negotiate and to set an equilibrium between everybody around the table is complicated. The other thing that we have to, to remember is that ESG might be a concern from investors, but less from the founders. I mean, there is this philosophy of getting rich quick and you know making it and all of that faking it until you make it as they say often and and then you wonder where does esg sit there i mean what's the sense of faking esg um, it's it's you know it's 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 a bit weird to 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 set this in in the context um having said that i don't want to sound too negative there is of course other investments where they do that very there was this um, um, uh, b corporation uh, framework where your your uh, social targets for example or environmental targets would be part of the bylaws of your corporation and then you have to live up to these expectations there were examples um, like zappos which this very innovative uh, holocratic uh, management. I don't know if it works out or not. So there are some attempts. I'm not saying that everybody's bad and we should always criticize the industry. But <clears throat> what I'm trying to highlight is that um, uh, we can be creative, but we have also to, to, to learn from what works well and what doesn't. And for that, we need a more systematic approach, probably a more, a more um, um, a generalized best practice approach. And, and the, the, the most challenging part, that's why the venture corner is so interesting, is that <clears throat> since the corporations are so small, since the resources are so limited, and since the entrepreneurs tend to be new, there are very few repeat entrepreneurs, by the way. When I started 20 years ago, the, the figure of the repeat entrepreneur would be around. Now it became that I'm a good entrepreneur, I make it, I become an angel or a venture investor. So <clears throat> this idea that you get repeat entrepreneurs is a little bit now in the background it's less relevant so it means that we deal with a lot of newcomers all the time but since we have this compressed time we cannot get them up to speed you would be surprised to see how many entrepreneurs don't have a proper business plan the best you can get is a vague um, uh, uh, powerpoint presentation uh, so uh, it's 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 also reflective of the, the lack of background, I would say, uh, the, the the lack of diffusion of the best practices, and and that's that's not reassuring when you want to implement an ESG uh, environment. 
so um you say a more systematic approach to esg my sense is that you're really talking about governance here yeah and because i think so i i once worked with a, a growth capital investor um and it was focused on sustainable technologies mm -hmm. and my sense was that both the manager and their investee companies were very frustrated with the highly systematic approach that um, institutional investors take to ESG yep. because they were all scoring averagely to pretty low when they thought that they should be, you know, in terms of the big aspirations of ESG, they should have been uh, right at the top. And the reason, of course, was that they were small and they were uh, investing in innovation, i.e. things that don't exist yet. And the ESG model is all about tracking and measuring and recording. And you True. can't track and measure something that doesn't exist, that yep. is theoretical, um, that might not ever work. And, uh, and, and they're looking at your, you know, your carbon footprint when there's actually just four guys in an office and they're all, to, to boot, they're all kind of white males, you know? It all looks terrible. And yet what they're trying to do is save the planet. And so you can have a systematic approach that's just completely inappropriate. I agree. And um, it's because in many respects, it has just become a risk management tool. It's a reputational concern. Did we show that we did something in the topic? Uh, what are the boxes to tick and uh, the boxes to tick? And, um, and as you said, then it becomes a very strange exercise where you have to contort yourself to fit in a kind of mold and the mold is predefined, it is not very flexible. And so in that respect, it's, it's a very strange exercise. And I agree with you. Um, I usually take this example. Uh, if tomorrow I have a health problem and someone has to open me, will I care if he or she is a man or woman? Or will I care where, where they come in terms of background? What I want is the best surgeon possible. Uh, because I have a problem and I want to make sure that we can fix it. The rest is is just secondary. Now, if we have to think in terms of ESG here, uh, it's not about uh, making sure that you have quotas or etc. It's about the fact that the, the surgeon will operate in the best context possible with the, the best ambition possible. So what would it be? It's a very interesting case, actually. What would be an ESG? application a real one now not just box ticking to uh, a, a surgery um but that would be a probably kind of acid test right because now we say that yeah the background doesn't matter it's 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 all about technicity education up to speed and 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 able to solve the problem uh, but there might be some dimensions um uh, in terms of how do you operate how do you uh, deal with with the let's say the aftermath and and how do you minimize for example the consequences what kind of arbitrage do you do as a surgeon between maybe go for um, a certain procedure which might have long-term consequences versus another one which might have different long-term consequences of course they think medically and i think that's the priority and it, the the image with the corporation is the same corporation still has to make money but the surgeon can also think about the long-term consequences for the social life, the environmental um, part of the, 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 the patient, so his family life and all of that. This can also somehow uh, feed in the medical decision. 
Uh, today, we tend to think about the patient with a very specific context, with, with a very medical perspective. If we, if we extend it, and that's the value of ESG, uh, saying maybe the procedure will be changed because this person lives alone and on the long term, he or she cannot really make it without additional support, then, then the medical decision will be, will be adjusted. It won't be a better or worse, it will be a different one. And I think that's, that's where the acid test of ESG comes in. It's like, it's not necessarily that ESG is going to make things better, but uh, the fact that we find, you, you use the term optimum with this re philosophical reference earlier, and I think that's the relevant one actually. Um, because all these ideas of reducing growth or growth zero, et cetera, it doesn't make sense. So we know that com companies and societies have to grow in terms of GDP and, and, and create more, but then the optimum might be different. And ESG is here to contribute to that. And I think that's where the externalities and all the rest fit in, uh, even though we don't know how to measure it, as you said, and, and your example is perfectly relevant. Great. Let's, let's try and round, round this up a little bit. Sure. Um, so um, there's this whole ESG industry, obviously, which is proactively investing in, in ESG type stuff. But there's also um some pressure on you know all mainstream fund managers mm -hmm. to sign up to esg principles there's the pri the principles for responsible yep. investment mm -hmm. which which is a whole other thing which we haven't had a chance to discuss um uh but their their approach to esg is very much the one that i think i personally think doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it doesn't allow for these ethical conundrums to be fully assessed or at least it it doesn't um it just excludes them from their view of the world and what's your view of, of how mainstream, let's call them generic fund managers, should, uh, should approach, um, I don't want to say ESG, but in more ethical conundrums in the round, how should they be communicating about them? Should they be adopting these top level schemes? Uh, you know, how, what, what do you think would be best practice? Hmm. It's a really tricky one. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's thought. very challenging. Um, I think uh, the UNPRI are somehow, as you said, it, it's 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 a bit toothless. Um, you can sign it. it. It involves a bit of reporting, a bit of um, extra work, and 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 then you do it. Does it hurt? Probably it costs money, so it creates barriers to entry to the small managers. And uh, you know, if I had to start today a fund manager from scratch and I have to add that up to all the rest, it's of course extra work, and that might actually limit my capacity to to launch. So um, it, it indeed creates some sort of you know, I would call it barrier to entry or at least to limitation. So every time we add a layer of regulation, we know that it entrenches interest and, and creates some barriers to entry. Uh, what kind of output does it create? It, it's difficult to estimate, I think. And, and for that, it's a first step, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's a magi magical or massive progress. The second part of your question is much more challenging. Um, 
And actually, when I published the book in 2003, that was one of the first questions people asked me. It's like, you're very good at criticizing, you know, being French originally and, and also Swiss. Um, uh, but what do you recommend? You know, French are always criticizing, but when they're very short, they're very good at criticizing, but very short in solutions sometimes. And, and, and I must say that actually it's a very, very difficult solution. It's not that I have a magical wand, you know, that I could wave and say, oh, this is, you know, the answer to all our problems. Um, the, the thing which you highlighted, which I think makes a lot of sense, I usually run a business case. I, I happen to do a lot of trainings and, um, and, and I usually try to play a little bit on the ESG dimension. And, um, and uh, the business case is about a mid-market buyout structure in the UK that we have to analyze as fund investors, right? And, and, and the team is composed of fairly old, you know, or middle-aged, let's call them like this, uh, white gentlemen. And, and of course, one of the ESG dimension is, well, where are the women, where are the, the minorities and all of that. And, and what I usually want people to experience is the difficulty of doing it from the investor side and from the fund manager side, because this is the status quo and there is no magical way of, of changing that. Are we satisfied with the status quo? Probably not, but what are the solutions? And this is where I think you can start to experience not only the challenge, but the nitty gritty part of it. Because if you start to promote too fast some individuals, it creates some rent, which we know in economy is not necessarily good. Uh, it creates some disincentives as well, because you know maybe some people got promoted for reasons which are beyond their intrinsic quality. That's the surgeon issue I was referring to earlier. And then, and then there is also a question of uh, readability. It's like, is it going to be the you know, the, the trophy uh, executive that we always put forward just to say that we comply with certain set of predefined rules, which we don't necessarily agree with, but we have to because otherwise we cannot work anymore. Um, unfortunately, the industry has been institutionalizing a lot. When I started 20 years ago, you could discuss with people and say, look, I just didn't happen to find anyone to fit, you know, in this position, the best, professional I have is here. Um, and so if you find someone else, tell me, and I will look at it definitely, but that's the best we can do. Today, this kind of reasoning doesn't fit in boxes. It's, um, you fill these questionnaires, which are kilometers long. Have you been, you know, arrested, blah, blah, blah. And then there is next section, ESG. Do you employ X percent of this it, there is no space for commenting here there is no space for thinking and reasoning and the worst part is that if someone decides to invest in your fund and you didn't tick the box he or she will be on the on the hook and and then they could always explain that at that time it made a lot of sense as i said there is this constant revisionism which says that no 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 it, it wasn't correct you should never have done that at that time the fact is that at that time it made sense and there was no alternative and you know so for, for this reason my view of, of esg and the pri is that it's not it's not just it doesn't work it's actually amoral or potentially immoral because you are forcing people to make decisions that they actually think might might not be the right ones in order to comply with what looks what looks good Yes, and, and the worst part will be if one day there is a major revision of these principles. Fortunately, they're drafted in a way that it's not going to happen. But um, 
where some a, a major part of the piece of the puzzle will will have to to move and will be replaced by a new one and then we will we'll reset the whole filter and then some of the decisions will appear as completely misconstrued or completely yeah. wrong that's actually one of my biggest worry uh, because um, since it's it's a very pragmatic operational process driven uh, approach and there is no ethical part anymore there is no principle there is no value part anymore which is explicitly something you can rely on even though they're in the background there is still the, this process which is the, the prime aspect then it means that <clears throat> you're right if one day we change our perspective then um, it, it's going to be very very challenging to handle the, the past decisions um, mm. Yeah, I think it's very unfair on those managers that choose not to adopt this stuff because of their ethical position and then get punished for it. We should, um, we should come up with, uh, with an alternative, you know, principles yeah. that, that, that reflect the complexity and nuance in the world that allow them to carry the ba a badge. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, normally, the industry should be well positioned to do that because we know that we are not living in a quant world in the private market mm, sector. Right. So um, we should be well equipped to do that. The, the fact is that the freedom or let's say the room for interpretation, the margins have been reduced dramatically. It's, it's more of a processing approach now. And that's related to the in institutionalization of the industry. Um, it had some drawback when it was a cottage industry forged on relationships because we heard about strange stories or there were even some scandals. There is always, in any case, in any system, you know, a part which is dysfunctional. Uh, does it mean that it was worse than what it is now? I'm not completely sure. Um, the fact is that besides the institutionalization, most of the important stuff happens outside. It happens when you meet people, when you discuss, you hear about this story and that story, and that it forces your opinion besides what is said is the, in the private placement memorandum or in the very polished communication that you receive. You know that you know, this manager shift and then, or this one is planning to retire and that's going to change the dynamics. And that's not something you can extract from a very process oriented fund selection uh, uh, approach. Um, the, the invisible part is actually what matters and, 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 and unfortunately that's something which tends to be more constrained today. Um, so if I had to take you up and I think we agree on, on what, what, what would be the idea, it, it would have been to reintroduce this part but re reintroducing the human in a process-oriented approach it's actually against the grain of history, right? We always want engines, software, and all these very reassuring aspects. And when you say, oh, I want to put back the humans, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we've been <laughs> trying to eliminate that to make scientific decisions, as we call them. And, um, and humans are supposed to be not scientific, apparently. So, um, um, but I would agree with you. That would be the logical way. Um, Maybe, maybe we will find a way. I mean, we have to be optimistic. Maybe, um, you know, um, uh, ultimately, uh, uh, I mean, as humans, we, we can also uh, define new systems um, where we would, we would be able to discuss and, and document that and say, look, we took a stance. Maybe the history will judge us harshly, but these are the reasons. And, and then we stick by it. Hmm. But for that, you need rewards. Um, there is one thing about ESG. Um, what is my reward? 
I mean, collectively, we might be better off or not, but what does it bring to me to stick my neck out and to take a risk and to say, look, that's what we should do because it's the correct way. Um, you cannot be evaluated on external, pos uh, sorry, positive externalities. You know, it's, uh, if you save 10 million carbon, uh, uh, tons of carbon, uh, are you going to be paid in safe carbon tons? I mean, how does it work? It's, uh, well, I think this is the whole point. It sits above, it sits above rewards. It's the, these, these are not financial considerations and therefore they must be treated as exceptional items and they should be treated not as PR and things to brag about, but things to account for yourself and explain why you took this decision against your, your you know, your primary goal. And now I think actually that's where the industry could work because this industry is built on governance and incentives. And so if you say this is above financial incentives, which I tend to fully agree with you, it means that we need to define a system where the approach is slightly different. And that's where the industry is probably with the brains and, and the power that they have, you know, they, they are probably some of the smartest people in the, in the financial industry work in our segment of the industry. So if they, if they sit down, they would probably come up with, with something which makes a lot of sense because it's not anymore about, you know, carried interest or management fees. It's about something else. But we, we could think about a system there and where people can stick their neck and then you know there is an incentive to do that still and not just playing politics or or playing it safe and to take some risk because this industry is built on taking risks ultimately so that would be great actually um yeah but well, why don't we follow up off, offline if anyone listening to this is interested they can get in touch with us of course, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it has to start somewhere. I mean, I'm not sure I'm well equipped to lead this kind of discussions, but probably no, no you mate. are because you seem to have given <laughs> a lot of thought. But I, I, w I would say that the industry counts probably some of the brightest elements. And so, you know, if they take the time and a little bit of the effort, they might come up with very interesting solutions. Great. Well, this sounds like the start of the conversation rather than the end. Cyril, thanks so much for Thank you very much. your thoughts. It's been really fascinating. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.